In his 2005 book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, David Harvey describes the political nature of neoliberalism. To begin with, the whole history of embedded liberalism and the subsequent turn to neoliberalization indicates the crucial role played by class struggle in either checking or restoring elite class power. Though it has been effectively disguised, we have lived through a whole generation of sophisticated strategizing on the part of ruling elites to restore, enhance, or as in China and Russia, to construct an overwhelming class power. The further turn to neoconservatism is illustrative of the lengths to which economic elites will go and the authoritarian strategies they are prepared to deploy in order to sustain their power. And all of this occurred in decades when working class institutions were in decline and when many progressives were increasingly persuaded that class was a meaningless or at least long defunct category. In this, progressives of all stripes seem to have caved in to neoliberal thinking, since it is one of the primary fictions of neoliberalism that class is a fictional category that exists only in the imagination of socialists and crypto-communists. The first lesson we must learn, therefore, is that if it looks like class struggle and acts like class war, then we have to name it unashamedly for what it is. Welcome back to Ending the Myth, the show where we plumb the depths of American history with the occasional help of Greg Grandin's book, The End of the Myth. <laughs> I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And today we are ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, 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 staying uh. in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> Last time we talked about the role counterinsurgency played in beating back the political and labor movements of the 1970s. So, with the ground prepared, today we are going to talk about how neoliberalism reasserted the power of the capitalist class in the American economy and politics. Ah, a neoliberalism. That's like when House Democrats put on kente cloth scarves and take a knee at the Capitol to commemorate them not doing anything about police violence against the black community, right? Uh, you know, a new liberalism. <laughs> you would think, uh, but... Not quite. <laughs> Though it could lead to that kind of behavior, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but <laughs> neoliberalism is actually a political project. And like first and foremost, that's what it is. Um, it's a project of essentially stripping the state to its bare bones of the arm of the state and using that state to create new markets around the world. So it's a project basically, you know, stripping all like social benefits from the state, stripping any sort of like sense of security or the state working for people and instead leveraging that using the arm of the state to 
open markets everywhere and opening markets requires a lot of force. And that's both with the military and the police. Awesome. Very excited for this new chapter. (laughs) Let's get in. Well, the journey into the heart of neoliberal darkness began, as these things always do, with a crisis. Economists Barry Bluestone and Bennett Harrison sum up the problem in their book, The Deindustrialization of America. Quote, the golden age of the 1950s and 1960s was not to last. Challengers to the global hegemony of American corporations began to emerge from behind every bush. In one industry after another, steel, rubber, textiles, automobiles, electronics, and footwear, Japanese and European competitors arose to challenge U.S. supremacy. Between 1960 and 1970, the American share of world trade declined by 16% and would fall during the decade of the 1970s by another 23%. In support of their own multinational corporations, many of them state-owned enterprises, The other capitalist governments of the world refused to abide any longer by the Bretton Woods Accords. The collapse of the Accords in 1971, symbolized by the Nixon administration floating the dollar free of the 25-year regime of fixed currency exchange rates, signaled the end of the Pax Americana. American capitalists entered the 1970s experiencing a profit squeeze that they had not seen since the turn of the 20th century. The average rate of return for non-financial industries in America went from a post-war high of 16% in 1965 to under 10% by 1978. The situation was especially dire for core manufacturing industries. Average net pre-tax profit for industry from the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s declined 51% for farm machinery, 53% for machine tools, and 69% for radio and television equipment. Now, it's important to note the difference between profit and the rate of profit. For instance, Ford Motor Company recorded record profit in 1973 with $903 million, which they broke again in 1976 with profits of $983 million. Yet the rate of profit, meaning the ratio of revenue to expenses over time in the American auto industry, had declined by 65% from the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s. So even though the mass of profit might be growing in size, the rate at which it was growing was in decline. Capitalists are particularly sensitive to the rate of profit as it indicates the direction that their industry is moving. By the mid-1970s, despite their record profits, Ford was already operating as a company in decline, closing plants and squeezing labor. Faced with a declining rate of profit, American industry pursued two strategies. They sought new, more profitable uses of their capital, and they sought new ways to cut production costs and squeeze labor. The end result of this pursuit was the process known as deindustrialization and the move to the financialized economy that we have today, with the fire sector, meaning finance, insurance, and real estate, on top, an industry serving as an ever-dwindling junior partner in the American economy. Now, despite the fatalism of modern economists who seek to naturalize every twist and turn of capitalism's development, deindustrialization was not a fait accompli. It was the product of choices made in the political and economic sector caused by real-world material interests and concerns. First among these was the rise of international competition in industrial production. 
The decline in major industries rate of profit detailed above was due in large part to the reindustrialization of Europe and Japan after the near total destruction of their economies in the Second World War. This, again, was a product of political choices as well as economic pressures. In Europe, Marshall Plan aid was used to help French and German industry get a footing after the war. The aid was not altruistic on America's part, however. It was deemed necessary to contain European communism, as local communist parties remained the only groups with any legitimacy post-war. Further, Marshall Plan aid had strings attached that tied European industry to American-controlled inputs, most notably oil. As European industry developed, special accommodations had to be made at the local level to both make that industry competitive and stem support for the communist movement. One big example is the creation of various forms of state-funded national healthcare systems across the continent. By removing the healthcare burden from the private sector, European industries were able to gain a competitive cost advantage over American industries. Finally, the destruction of European factories during the war meant that German industry in particular became focused on buying the latest and most efficient machine tools, frequently using USAID to do it, meaning that European industry was often more efficient than American industry with its aging factories while having less capital overhead. In Japan, the story is much the same. General Douglas MacArthur, who saw himself as something akin to a new emperor in Japan, initially wanted the country fully deindustrialized and made reliant on agrarian and extractive industries. Unrest in the country and the threat of a burgeoning communist movement forced the U.S. to change course and begin nursing Japanese industry back to health. As in Europe, Japan was even allowed to pursue import substitution industrialization or ISI strategies where they could use tariff barriers and state subsidies to protect domestic industry. American corporations played their own part in building up their future competitors. Fearing the strength of the American labor movement, industries began using a strategy of decentralized and parallel production. Large integrated factories are both easier to unionize and more disruptive when a strike is called. So corporations decentralize production, breaking the production process up into its constituent parts and spreading it out to smaller manufacturing plants scattered both nationally and internationally. They also created parallel production plants to mitigate the disruption caused by a strike. So, for example, if a plant in Michigan were to go on strike production could easily be shifted to a plant in Mexico. In order to build up this anti-labor infrastructure, American industry granted Japanese industry incredibly lenient licensing and patent rights that essentially jumped Japanese R&D, or research and development, decades forward in time for free. General Electric, a pioneer in leveraging these strategies against its workers, provided a relevant example. After a strike at one of their plants in Ashland, Massachusetts, GE drastically cut down on the plant's workforce before moving the production line to Singapore. As a rep for the United Electrical Workers put it, quote, The lesson intended is absolutely clear. GE can move. UE can't. GE also made large investments in Japanese industry as a part of a strategy of creating parallel production. By 1970, GE was the single largest shareholder in Toshiba stock and owned 40% of its subsidiary Toshiba Electronic Systems. 
GE also had 24 separate licensing agreements with Toshiba to make electronic components and assemblies that were then sold internationally under the GE label. This parallel production was used to mitigate the damage caused by a 1969 strike at one of the company's largest American factories. The end result of all of these forces was that industry in the United States saw its share of global trade decline dramatically throughout the late 1960s and 1970s. As Japanese and European production increased, it increasingly came into competition with American goods, creating a crisis of overproduction. The state at which the marketplace becomes flooded, making production increasingly unprofitable, which pushed the desire to deindustrialize forward. A second major factor in deindustrialization was the use of factory relocation as a tool to break labor unions. When asked by the Wall Street Journal, Donovan Dennis of the plant relocation consulting firm Fantas explained that the major determinant in moving a plant was labor costs. Quote, labor costs are the big thing, far and away. Nine out of ten times, you can hang it on labor costs and unionization. Contemporary researcher Roger Schminner explained the importance of a good, quote, corporate environment, writing, quote, no other public policy carries anywhere near the location clout of the right-to-work law. The Orwellian-named right-to-work law was a product of a decades-long campaign by the National Association of Manufacturers, our friends from episode 17. These laws banned the clothes shop, allowing workers to refuse to pay union dues while still benefiting from union contracts. It also allowed employers to fire workers without giving cause. Essentially, making retaliation against unions legal while choking them off from their source of funding. These laws were first passed in southern states, though they have spread to most of the country by now. Where unions could not be broken, factories were simply closed and moved to non-union areas. Runaway factories typically moved to states in the American South and Southwest, where anti-union sentiment had been carefully cultivated for over a century. Once relocated, the new workforce would receive lower wages and benefits, as well as zero protection against layoffs and firings. The industrial cities of the Northeast and Midwest that lost the factory would lose thousands of high-paying union jobs and the many thousands more jobs that were created to support the union workforce. Further, the threat of moving caused many unions to concede first to benefit and then wage cuts, as well as removal of job protections. The end result was that the American workforce became both more contingent and more impoverished, increasingly unable to provide the motor for the purchase of goods that kept the post-war economy humming. The crises of overproduction grew more severe, fueling further factory moves, eventually moving large amounts of production overseas. A third cause of deindustrialization was the squeeze on labor created through technological innovation, specifically the desire to automate production. The move toward automation was incredibly costly and required large-scale state intervention dating back to the Second World War to make it economically practical. A quick look at the development of numerical control or NC technology for machine tools illustrates this point. NC technology was a way of automating production done on lathes and mills, among other machine tools, that had primarily been done manually by a highly skilled and unionized workforce. After the Second World War, the military became increasingly concerned about the political reliability of its supply chain. 
They sought a way to make the worker and their politics obsolete in the process of production. Federal funds flowed through the Air Force to development projects at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which then turned that research and development over to the private sector companies like RCA, Westinghouse, Raytheon, and Cincinnati Mill, who then sold the products to industries whose primary clientele was the military. By 1964, two-thirds of research and development costs in the field of electronics was funded by the federal government, largely through the Pentagon. The fact that money for industrial research and production was largely coming from the Pentagon meant that more and more universities and factories fell under de facto Defense Department management. As historian David Noble writes, By 1963, over 25,000 private industrial firms had come under such Pentagon security regulations, specified in a Department of Defense manual on how to handle classified materials, check employees, supervise visitors, issue identification badges, and conduct surveillance. In 1962, the American Society for Industrial Security had 2,490 members with chapters in 48 states. This meant a renewed focus from the state on labor discipline. As political scientist Harold Lasky remarked at the time, in the new warfare, the engineering factory is a unit of the army, and the worker may be in uniform without being aware of it. The costly and time-consuming creation of NC technology is best seen in this context as a political project to shift control over production from the hands of workers into the hands of management. In 1954, when NC technology was in its infancy, the trade journal American Machinist hailed the promise of the new tech, quote, Numerical control is not a strictly metalworking technique, it is a philosophy of control. As one management consultant noted at the time, quote, What is today called automation is conceptually a logical extension of Taylor's scientific management. When economist Michael Peori conducted a study of the adoption of NC technology in 1968, he was compelled to comment on the political nature of its development. Quote, Virtually without exception, the engineers distrusted hourly labor and admitted a tendency to substitute capital wherever they had discretion to do so. As one engineer explained, if the cost comparison favored labor, but we were close, I would mechanize anyway. General Electric's Earl Troop was even more blunt. With NC, there's a shift of control to management, which is no longer dependent upon the operator. Or, as a manager at TRW remarked, once the tape is in and the override is locked, the operator is helpless. All you need is a robot. The point of hitting you with all of these quotes from contemporary participants in the development of NC technology is to drive home that this process of automation was a conscious political act. And that act would not have been supported by the market itself, requiring a massive state intervention at every level to make possible. In short, the state made the conscious choice to engage in a decades-long project to crush the bargaining power of labor in the machinist trade. The mass adoption of NC technology meant, in the words of David Noble, that, quote, management could dictate in detail not only what would be done and how, but also how long it would take. Machinists in the job shop would now become mere machine tenders like their brothers and sisters on the assembly line, disciplined by foremen, but also by the machines as well. The end result of this technological innovation was that machinist wages fell throughout the 1970s, and companies laid machinists off 
since the work of three skilled workers can now be done by a single machine operator, at a significantly lower wage, of course. The layoffs and wage cuts caused by automation, of course, fueled the crisis of overproduction that was driving down the rate of profit, further incentivizing more layoffs and wage cuts in order to squeeze additional surplus out of labor. The increasing importance of finance capital was tied to the decline of America's industrial fortunes. As the economists Bluestone and Harrison note, quote, Buying and selling entire businesses and transferring capital from one sector to another at the first sign of trouble constituted the most important corporate strategies for raising short-term profitability during the 1960s and protecting those profits in the face of the economic crisis of the 1970s. On the macro level, mergers helped to hide the effect of declining profit rates through one-time increases in the mass of profits of a corporation. On the micro level, CEO pay during this period was tied to the physical size of the firm, which they oversaw, creating a direct incentive for executives to pursue strategies of merger and consolidation. Economic incentives were paired with the relaxation of anti-monopoly regulation at the federal level in the late 1960s to create the largest wave of corporate mergers since the Gilded Age. Corporations needed access to financing, so their buying spree helped accelerate mergers in the banking sector as well. Local banks combined into regional behemoths, providing the funds for corporate mergers at the local and state level. Firms went deeply into debt to finance these mergers, ironically transferring economic and therefore political power to finance capital. Changes in corporate managerial culture that took place in the 1960s again redounded to the benefit of finance. The scientific management revolution of the progressive era put a premium on hiring experts for managerial roles over people with practical experience. Education funding through the GI Bill supercharged the transition to professional management as more people than ever were able to attend college. This practice served two functions. One, it created sociocultural separation between management and the workforce that they were tasked with disciplining. And two, it provided valuable class training for managers. Colleges provided a crash course in the ideology and even mannerisms of the capitalist class, ensuring that when a corporation hires someone out of school, that person was the right kind of person and their ideas were the right kind of ideas. David Noble gives a hypothetical example to illustrate this point. Quote, suppose that an engineer designed a machine for his best friend, for her birthday, say. When it was completed, he offered it to her, saying with true professional pride, Happy birthday, I have built for you my finest machine. It is so well designed, it can be run by an idiot. No doubt his friend, who does not consider herself an idiot, would be taken aback. Their friendship would be, for the moment, in doubt and the engineer would be obliged to try to redesign the machine for someone who was not an idiot. This he would find very difficult, given the orientation of his professional knowledge, and he might not even know where to begin. However, had he presented that same machine to a manufacturer with the same claim that it could be run by an idiot, he would probably have encountered no such difficulty. Imbued with the philosophy of work simplification and de-skilling, desirous of reducing his labor costs and minimizing his labor problems, and because of his rights as an employer, having the power to compel his workers to do idiot work, the manufacturer would probably have found the machine quite satisfactory. Indeed, it is his criteria embedded in the engineer's art 
that shaped the design in the first place without the engineer even being aware of it. Management's political education taught it to see itself as the brains of the company and the workers as the unthinking hands. This desire to wrestle the intellectual labor out of the hands of workers led to bloat at the top of corporations as every problem required a team of managers to resolve it, and class solidarity ensured that the workforce reductions always started at the bottom. It also led to the creation of a managerial culture separate from the individual tasks of actual production. By the early 1970s, this culture took the moniker of the new managerialism, given to it by the Boston Consulting Group, a management consulting firm born out of the Harvard Business School. New managerialism, quote, emphasized cash management over a commitment to any particular product line within ever-growing corporate conglomerates. With the new emphasis on cash flow, new acquisitions obtained through corporate mergers were treated as either cows to be milked or banks to be looted. Even profitable businesses found themselves shuttered when they could not meet their new owners' overly rosy benchmarks for rate of return. Bluestone and Harrison give the 1977 closing of Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company and its attendant loss of 4,100 jobs as an example. Quote, in 1969, Sheet and Tube, then the nation's eighth largest steelmaking firm, was purchased by a New Orleans-based conglomerate, the Likes Corporation. The acquisition was financed mainly by a loan that Likes promised to pay off out of Sheet and Tube's very substantial cash flow. During the next eight years, Likes used Sheet and Tube's cash to amortize that debt and to expand its non-steel operations. In the decade before the merger, investment in plant and equipment averaged $72 million per year and increased each year at an average rate of $9.3 million. After the acquisition by Likes, the average fell to about $34 million per year and would have had zero growth trend if not for a few investment projects begun in 1975 and then quickly abandoned. In the years immediately following the acquisition, Likes pursued a strategy of planned disinvestment in its recent acquisition. By the time changing market conditions had convinced Likes that it might make sense to remain in Youngstown after all, there were no longer sufficient reserves to finance the necessary retooling. With its focus on short-term rate of return and its disinterest in the process of creating value, new managerialism had adopted the values of finance capital at exactly the time that finance was overtaking production in the American economy. Perhaps ironically, larger financial institutions benefited from the dismantling of the Bretton Woods system that they had forged in the aftermath of the Second World War. The Vietnam War struck a fatal blow against Bretton Woods by combining inflationary pressure with visible American weakness. In March of 1968, European banks led a run on American gold reserves demanding to exchange their American dollars for gold at the Bretton Woods fixed exchange rate of $35 an ounce. The U.S. lost nearly a billion dollars in the bank run over four days before shutting down the exchange window. Later that month, the U.S. lost $372 million in gold in a single afternoon before being forced to close the gold market again. President Lyndon Johnson called Europe's central bankers to Washington for an emergency meeting in mid-March, warning that, quote, these financial disorders can profoundly damage the political relations between Europe and America and set in motion forces like those 
which disintegrated the Western world between 1929 and 1933. The Europeans were not moved by Johnson's dire warnings. As historian Gabriel Kokol writes, quote, European bankers refused to use their gold to save the dollar. They categorically rejected an American request that they forego their right to claim gold for dollars from the U.S. Treasury. This instability in the Bretton Woods order, in turn, began to impact the American war effort, as Colquell notes. After the Tet Offensive, the administration finally acknowledged that any increase in troops to Vietnam threatened not just the country's economy, but all of its domestic and international priorities. In the years following the 1968 run on America's gold reserves, the Treasury Department played a cat-and-mouse game with European bankers, strategically opening and closing the gold window. <laughs> In the first week of August 1971, the French demanded an exchange of $1 billion U.S. dollars for gold at the Bretton Woods price. French President Georges Pompidou even sent a French battleship to New York Harbor to assist in the transfer of gold from Fort Knox. Nixon was furious. The next week, Britain demanded to exchange three billion U.S. dollars for forty thousand tons of gold, significantly more gold than the U.S. had. As then Treasury Undersecretary for Monetary Affairs Paul Volcker would later put it, "Quote: If the British, who had founded the Bretton Woods system with us and who had fought so hard to defend their own currency," were going to take gold for their dollars, it was clear the game was over indeed. Nixon halted all shipment of gold out of the country, and on August 15th announced that dollars would no longer be convertible into gold. In 1973, Nixon officially floated the U.S. dollar, meaning that the dollar's value would be set by the market, officially bringing an end to the Bretton Woods system. Seven months after Nixon shocked the international community by floating the dollar, the Arab nations of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, announced an oil embargo aimed at ending U.S. and British support for Israel in the Yom Kippur War. The embargo led to an immediate spike in oil prices and a gas crisis in the United States. The U.S. immediately began planning a military campaign to invade and occupy Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Abu Dhabi. With the threat of invasion looming, Saudi Arabia ended the embargo in 1974, agreeing that in exchange for allowing OPEC to exist, Arab petrodollars would be recycled through New York City banks. Oil was at the time, and remains, the most important commodity traded on international markets. It is absolutely essential to the functioning of a modern society. The 1974 agreement guaranteed that this commodity would be only exchanged in U.S. dollars, forcing countries to maintain large supplies of U.S. dollars in their foreign reserves, essentially soaking up American debt. In effect, the United States had replaced the gold standard with the petrodollar. All of this was a windfall for America's largest financial institutions. The deregulation of currency markets opened up new opportunities for speculative investment, while the influx of petrodollars helped to recapitalize the financial sector. Further, countries that were now forced to carry large amounts of dollars in their foreign reserves were left with two options on where to put the money. One, they could buy U.S. Treasury notes, which they did in droves. And two, they could allow New York financial institutions to invest the money for them. This led to the rapid expansion of financial instruments created to court this new influx of cash. 
and the need to expand markets for finance capital led to a corresponding deregulation of the financial sector to make room for the creation of new financial instruments. revolt of the late 1960s, coinciding with the decline in profits for American capitalists, was seen as a social and economic catastrophe by the capitalist class. In 1971, the National Chamber of Commerce contacted Lewis Powell, a corporate lawyer who sat on the board of several major American corporations, to draw up a confidential memo for combating this excess in democracy. In his now infamous 1971 memo, Powell warned that Radicals were winning the hearts and minds of the public by setting the rich against the poor. More distressing to Powell was a poll of university students that revealed almost half the students favored socialization of basic U.S. industries. In this memo, Powell takes for granted that unfettered capitalism is the core value of Western society, that the capitalist class is the core constituency of the society, and that the right to private profit is the core human right. Powell argued that business needs to stop its policy of appeasement with the working class, and that the time has come indeed, it is long overdue, for the wisdom, ingenuity, and resources of American business to be marshaled against those who would destroy it. He then outlined his plan as follows. First, he pointed out that individual action would not be enough, business elites would have to approach the remolding of U.S. society as a class project on behalf of class interest. Strength, he writes, lies in organization, in careful long-range planning and implementation, in consistency of action over an indefinite period of years, in the scale of financing available only through joint effort, and in the political power available only through united action and national organizations. Second, He urged that the National Chamber of Commerce should be flooded with funds and other resources to coordinate this new propaganda assault. Other business organizations should be created to provide both resources and other avenues for shaping public opinion. Powell notes that in the past, corporate executives only concerned themselves with profit, but, quote, if our system is to survive, top management must be equally concerned with protecting and preserving the system itself. Finally, He argued that business organizations should use their power, prestige, and wealth to reshape major social institutions, universities, schools, the media, publishing, the courts, in order to change how individuals think about the corporation, the law, culture, and the individual. What Powell was calling for was nothing short of the largest mobilization of elite power for the purpose of maintaining its class interests since the start of the Cold War. The effect of Powell's memo was immediately apparent. Between 1972 and 1982, the National Chamber of Commerce expanded its membership from 60,000 to 250,000 firms. Our old friend from the progressive era, the National Association of Manufacturers, moved its main office from the Midwest to Washington, D.C. to improve its access to government officials. 
1977, it created the Council on a Union-Free Environment that pushed anti-labor legislation at every level of government. Powell also inspired the creation of a bevy of policy think tanks to lobby on the behalf of the ultra-rich, most notable of which were the Heritage Foundation, the National Taxpayers Union, and the Trilateral Commission. The Business Roundtable, also created at the time, was made up of CEOs whose firms made up one half of U.S. GNP in 1972. By 1976, Businessweek labeled the Business Roundtable the most powerful voice in Washington. The emerging power of the Roundtable was exemplified in their first major project, the defeat of the Consumer Protection Agency in 1979. The Roundtable distributed a stream of cartoons and editorials that derided the agency to 1,000 daily newspapers and 2,800 weekly publications. Portions of these materials were published without listing the Roundtable as their source over 2,000 times. The Roundtable also sponsored a poll that fraudulently claimed that 81% of Americans opposed the CPA, when in reality they were 2 to 1 in favor of it. The chamber paid to have the poll plastered in full-page ads in the New York Times. Newspaper editorials from around the country, most having originated from the roundtable itself, were gathered and mailed to members of Congress to create the illusion of a grassroots opposition to the bill. When the bill was defeated, the nation wrote of the roundtable's success, quote, With this final twist, the New Deal comes full circle. In the late 1970s, as in the 1920s, the business of America is business and the populace can't imagine it otherwise. Reforming education, particularly at the university level, had long been a goal of the conservative revanchist project. The evangelical movement sought its social base in the massive resistance movement of the segregationist South, fighting tooth and nail against orders to integrate public schools. Out of these efforts, evangelicals built a vast network of private schools and lobby states to begin funneling public money into the private school system. At these schools, students were treated to textbooks written by the National Association of Manufacturers and faculty brought up on the Cold War paranoia of the John Birch Society. At the university level, conservatives like Ronald Reagan were making a name for themselves attacking college students and faculty as lazy, communists, and traitors to the country. Anytime Reagan's popularity dipped as governor of California in the late 1960s, he knew he could attack UC Berkeley, an amorphous concept as terrifying to the conservative mind in 1968 as Antifa is today. (laughs) After the murder of four students at Kent State by National Guardsmen in 1970, conservatives in the town took to flashing four fingers in the air and shouting the slogan, the score is four. And next time more. Charming. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. (laughs) A letter in the local paper lamented that, quote, the only mistake they made was not to shoot all the students and then started on all the faculty. Conservatives picketed the memorial services of the murdered students, mocking their friends and family. A local conservative who was arguing that the National Guard should have killed all the students was asked by a reporter if that included the conservatives' own three sons who went to the college. They replied, quote, If they didn't do what the guards told them, they should have been mowed down. The hatred of American college students wasn't contained in the town of Kent. 
A national Gallup poll found that 58% of Americans blamed the students for getting murdered, while only 11% blamed the National Guard. Among the capitalist class, concerns about the university system extended beyond the culture war pavlum that they fed the masses. In late 1970, Roger Freeman, advisor to Governor Reagan and professor at Stanford's Hoover Institute, explained the issue to the press, quote, We are in danger of producing an educated proletariat, and that's dynamite. We have to be selective on who we allow to go through higher education. If not, we will have a large number of highly trained and unemployed people. That's what happened in Germany. I saw it happen. The initial attack on the universities began with the purging of the faculty. Angela Davis was fired from UCLA in 1969 over her membership in the CPUSA. When she took UCLA to court and won, the Board of Regents fired her again in 1970. Despite being a distinguished professor and author, she didn't get another job in academia until 1975, when she taught a class at Claremont College that was capped at 25 students and not listed in the college's course catalog in order to suppress attendance and satisfy donors. It wasn't until 1991 that she was able to get a job within the UC system again, this time at the less prestigious UC Santa Cruz. In 1972, H. Bruce Franklin, a distinguished and well-liked professor in Stanford's English department, was fired after a red-baiting campaign was launched against him. It would be years before he was able to get a job in academia, again at the less prestigious Rutgers University. Similarly, Michael Parenti, a political scientist and all-around really awesome guy, hell yeah, was fired from the University of Vermont and permanently blacklisted from academia. These are just the most notable examples. Across the country, faculty that were deemed suspect were purged. At the University of Washington, four members of the political science department were fired for being suspected radicals. Two more quit in protest. Members of the history department, philosophy department, and even an economics professor were also fired. A new focus was put on building departments that met the needs of corporate donors who had become politically radicalized, particularly in economics departments where Keynesian economists were replaced with libertarian hardliners who would develop the fig leaf justifications for neoliberalism. The University of Chicago becoming a particularly odious font of corporate-funded neoliberal ideology at this time. Still, the faculty purges did not address the problem posed by the student body itself. In the summer of 1970, James Buchanan co-authored a short and highly influential book titled Academia in Anarchy. Buchanan was a libertarian economist and member of the Mont Pelerin Society. While at the University of Virginia in the 1950s and 1960s, he pioneered the field of public choice theory, a philosophy that argued market incentives should be applied to all aspects of social and political life. Buchanan quickly became a sensation among Virginia's upper crust, including Richmond native Lewis Powell, Eugene Sidnor Jr., the Richmond businessman who commissioned the Powell Memo, and Charles Koch, who became Buchanan's primary patron. Buchanan's public choice theory was developed to deal with the crisis created by Brown versus the Board of Education's demand that the South desegregate its public schools. Buchanan argued that instead of forced integration, parents and students should be offered school choice, the option to go to whatever school they wanted to. 
Wrapped in the now familiar neoliberal language of consumer choice and forcing schools to compete for students, school choice was merely a pretext to achieving racial segregation in schools by other means. Widely ridiculed at the time as a flimsy cover for massive resistance, school choice is now the dominant method by which public schools are organized. It has also achieved its goal. A 2012 study by Harvard University found that America's public schools are now more segregated than they were in 1968. The flight of white students to private schools led to another milestone in 2014, when for the first time in the nation's history, the majority of public school students were non-white. With academia and anarchy, Buchanan aimed to do for the university system what he had done for the public schools. Buchanan had been haunted by the one year that he spent teaching at UCLA in the 1968-69 school year. His economics department was the only faculty department that did not come out in support of Angela Davis. Buchanan wrote of his time there, quote, I thought that I had landed in a lunatic asylum in a world gone mad. Everywhere, students refused to respect the authority of their economic and social betters, and the universities themselves were enabling, quote, a handful of revolutionary terrorists to undo the heritage of centuries. <laughs> what a loser, man. <laughs> this guy sucks so much. <laughs> he was so mad about this. <laughs> In Academia and Anarchy, Buchanan summed up the problem at universities as he saw it in economic terms. One, those who consume the university's product, students, do not purchase it at full cost. Two, those who produce it, faculty, do not sell it. And three, those who finance it, taxpayers, do not control it. Students can act up, protest, etc. without paying any personal cost, and faculty would allow this since their job security and pay were not tied to the disciplinary mechanisms of the market. For faculty, Buchanan suggested that their job security had to be put into question and pay had to be allocated to those faculty who brought the correct culture to the campus. He even suggested making faculty, quote, rent, lease, or purchase their offices and facilities on campus as a hedge against faculty support for student sit-ins. Historian Nancy McLeon describes Buchanan's idea for students. Students should pay full cost prices, and universities should compete for them as customers. If you stop making college free, and charge a hefty tuition, ideally enough to cover the entire cost of each education, you will ensure that students will have a strong economic incentive to focus on their studies and nothing else. Certainly not trying to alter the university or the wider society. But Buchanan was also arguing for something else, educating far fewer Americans, particularly low-income Americans who cannot afford full-cost tuition. The idea quickly became a sensation. The National Review put out the call for, quote, a system of full tuition charges supplemented with loans which students must pay out of their future income. It was a system of social control that allowed regional banks to create another financial instrument with which to soak up the wealth of society, further strengthening finance capital directly at the expense of college students. In response, California Governor Ronald Reagan pushed to defund the California school system as an austerity measure, with the shortfall to be made up by hiking student tuition. In 1976, President Gerald Ford 
forced the City University of New York to instate student tuition for the first time in the college's history. More on that later. By 1978, student debt had become such an important source of profits for the banking sector that then-Senator from Delaware Joe Biden pushed through a federal law that exempted student debt from bankruptcy, officially chaining students to their debt forever. During Ronald Reagan's first term as president, the Department of Education extended that bankruptcy exception to debt incurred by students at community colleges and vocational schools. Ironically, just as the state and federal government were divesting from America's universities, Buchanan also called for a larger role in the running of colleges to be played by the taxpayer, who Buchanan described as the boss of the college system. (laughs) What Buchanan was really advocating was for conservative politicians, wealthy donors, and corporate donors to play a larger and more concerted role in shaping the political environment at the collegiate level. For James Buchanan, who had retreated to Virginia Tech after his one year at UCLA. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the money began to pour in. Scaife Family Charitable Trust, John Olin, and the John M. Olin Foundation, and Charles Koch all lined up to shower both Buchanan and his new center of public choice with money. As for Lewis Powell, he would be nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court only two months after penning his infamous memo. On the bench, Powell fought to limit and weaken affirmative action programs in regents of the University of California versus Bakke and reaffirmed the state's use of the death penalty in Gregg versus Georgia and McCluskey versus Kemp. Perhaps Powell's most enduring contribution would be his assenting vote in Buckley v. Vallejo and the majority opinion he wrote in 1978's First National Bank of Boston versus Bellotti, which effectively invented a First Amendment right for corporations to participate in the political process through campaign contributions. It should be noted that by 1978, business interests were already spending $1 billion per year on grassroots propaganda. The Vallejo and Bellotti cases would form the precedent for 2010 Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission, which removed all the remaining barriers to corporate influence of elections a ruling that was opposed by 80% of the public, incidentally. (laughs) Yeah. The neoliberal project was reshaping the United States piece by piece, asserting the power of capital and putting labor back in its place. But a large-scale, top-down project had yet to be attempted. In 1973, the CIA launched a coup against Chilean President Salvador Allende. In his place... The U.S. had placed a military officer that had been trained by the American military as a school of the Americas facility in Panama. Augusto Pinochet immediately brought in economic advisors from the United States, largely pulled from the University of Chicago Economics Department, to rebuild the Chilean economy. Their advice followed the neoliberal playbook. 1. Crush the labor movement by any means necessary. 2. Roll back any rights given to workers, such as the right to organize, safety regulations, and the minimum wage. Three, lower taxes on capital and the wealthy to virtually nothing. Four, cover the revenue shortfall by privatizing public services. Five, deregulate the industry and financial sector. Six, remove all currency controls. It was a bold experiment. But as the American advisors began to completely collapse the Chilean economy and ship all of its wealth back to New York, 
Pinochet balked and reinstituted capital controls and slowed the rate of privatization. Still, it had been a rousing success in reinstituting American colonial power over a disobedient vassal state. What American capitalists wanted now was to bring the lessons from Chile home. They got their chance with the New York City debt crisis. In 1975, fresh from advising the Pinochet dictatorship in Chile, Milton Freeman was allowed to make New York City the first neoliberal test case in the U.S. Coming off of a string of labor victories and compromises to quell social unrest, New York City was a burgeoning social democracy in the 1970s, with a vast and strong public sector, including the administration of public housing, health, and transit. The urban crisis declared in the 1960s brought federal aid into cities, who were reeling from a diminished tax base caused by suburbanization and white flight. Reductions in services and basic maintenance of infrastructure led to explosive social unrest in the urban core, a condition echoed in every major city in America. Economic growth in cities increasingly came from the public sector, where a relatively large portion of the city's workforce was employed. President Nixon, however, declared the urban crisis over in the early 70s in a bid to tighten federal funding and diminish support for the urban cores of America, where many black workers resided. Cuts in federal aid to cities and New York City's dependency on Albany to raise taxes, a demand hobbled by constitutional limits on property taxes, pushed New York to keep issuing municipal bonds to private banks to finance the everyday operations of the city. Government bonds are considered low-risk, and many financial institutions buy into them knowing they're protected by the backing of the state and federal government. This all came to a screeching halt in 1975, when a powerful cabal of investment bankers, led by Walter Ritston of Citibank, refused to roll over the debt, pushing the largest city in the country into technical bankruptcy. A shocking and unexpected move. Financial institutions were no longer eyeing profiting from increased interest rate payments from the municipal government of New York. They were now pursuing a political takeover of the entire city. Letting the largest city in the country collapse was unthinkable, but the governor of New York and the Ford administration refused to bail out New York City. The New York Daily News' infamous 1975 headline summed up the situation. Ford to city, drop dead. Private financial institutions were given free reign to pursue their own bailout, which amounted to a full-blown coup, restructuring the city to their will. Financial creditors have first claim on city tax dollars, leaving only the crumbs to the city for essential services. Capital's takeover of the city led to sharp cuts to the city budget, including sharp cuts to housing, transit, healthcare, and wage freezes. Use fees, like hikes and MTA fares, transferred the burden of city services from the wealthy to the working class, a direct wealth transfer upwards. Similarly, tuition was introduced at city universities for the first time, increasing problems of affordability and inequality in higher education. The policy of open enrollment, where any high school graduate could attend city university, which granted Latino and Black residents of New York a new level of educational inclusion and equity, was rolled back. Finally, a core consequential action capital imposed was curbing powerful municipal unions by forcing their pension fund to invest in the city's own municipal bonds, rather than finance firms. 
This use of union pension funds to bankroll city operations had two simultaneous effects. The first being finance firms offloading risk of their own bonds from their books onto the union's pension. Second, by taking on municipal bonds and union pensions, unions had an intrinsic material investment in the city's capital-imposed debt crisis. If workers pushed for higher wages, their pension might disappear due to New York City's government defaulting on the bonds. Tying labor's interests by the neck to capital's runaway train helped to quell labor's demands on the city. During the crisis, some business leaders threatened moving their headquarters to other states. Before the financial coup, the head of the New York Stock Exchange flirted with the idea of moving the stock exchange to Connecticut. But the dismantling of the public sector did not mean capital was abandoning New York. The New York Stock Exchange and most businesses remained. Capital instead seized control of the city government and remade the city of New York. Rather than class struggle and a large public sector, the new cultural vision of New York was an epicenter of creative culture and a tourism hub. Money shifted into marketing for tourism. The world-famous slogan, I Heart New York, was created as a part of New York's new city marketing campaign and funding for private artist space to satisfy the wealthy's demand for exclusive high culture. Gentrification projects and real estate speculation remade the city, displacing large portions of working-class residents in favor of newer, wealthier residents. Police funding continued to rise to facilitate and enforce displacing residents in favor of private real estate ventures. Journalist Christian Parenti describes this process in his analysis of a series of high-profile police raids dubbed Operation Pressure Point in 1987. The two main targets during Pressure Point were Tompkins Square Park in the East Village and the adjacent Lower East Side, a poor working-class Eastern European, Puerto Rican, and Dominican barrio. Far from being New York's worst copping zones, these areas were chosen in part to facilitate advancing gentrification. Both neighborhoods were being targeted by real estate interests for redevelopment and resettlement by hip urban professionals. For that to work, the local riffraff, junkies, and homeboys had to be pushed out. Despite this remaking of New York, the process was not smooth or devoid of pushback. Protests raged outside of schools, fire departments, and hospitals. With hospitals in the Bronx providing inadequate health care, activist groups like the Young Lords seized Lincoln Hospital in South Bronx, a predominantly black area and among the few places in the city which allowed black healthcare professionals to have a secure job. The Young Lords claimed the hospital was understaffed and negligently run due to a lack of funding and resources. The care was dreadful, and the Young Lords proclaimed the hospital needed emergency community leadership and occupied the building. An internal memo of Lincoln Hospital all but confirmed the Young Lord's claims, calling the hospital, quote, a completely inappropriate place to care for the sick. Open skirmishes with the police became relatively common after police waged violence against protesters. Organizers proclaimed the proposed closures of fire stations in North Brooklyn sent a message that the city would rather see residents go up in flames than live here. Sit-ins at various hospitals like Sydenham lasted for weeks. The revival of the city's economy later in the 1980s meant the restoration of much of the spending that had been cut during the crisis. 
but other measures, such as hospital closures and the introduction of tuition, were never undone. In the decades that followed, the city would expand its subsidies for corporate investment and real estate development. The neoliberal project of New York permanently changed the city. Yet, New York's debt crisis did more than terraform the city's largest and most important city into a playground for the wealthy. It also set an important precedent that ensured every city in America could be subject to a similar process. As radical geographer David Harvey notes, quote, It established the principle that in the event of a conflict, the integrity of financial institutions and bondholders returns, on the one hand, and the well-being of the citizens on the other. The former was to be privileged. It emphasized that the role of the government was to create a good business climate rather than look to the needs and well-being of the population at large. Harvard professor Samuel Huntington, the same academic who would later cheerlead the war on terror as a racialized civilizational conflict in his book Clash of Civilizations, would sum up the problem for American capitalism in a 1976 report for the Trilateral Commission entitled The Crisis of Democracy. Quote, the essence of the democratic surge of the 1960s was a general challenge to the existing systems of authority, public and private. People no longer felt the same obligation to obey those whom they had previously considered superior to themselves in age, rank, status, expertise, character, or talents. Huntington saw this as an, quote, excess of democracy that produced problems for the governability of democracies in the 1970s. He urged that there were desirable limits to the extension of political democracy arguing that a popular mandate was irrelevant to how politicians should rule. What was relevant was a politician's ability to mobilize support from the leaders of key institutions in a society and government. This coalition must include key people in Congress, the executive branch, and the private sector establishment. This was not just the complaints of a random crank. The Trilateral Commission had been founded in 1973 by David Rockefeller in response to the Powell Memo. Funded largely by New York's financial sector, the think tank focused on developing the economic alliance between the United States, Europe, and Japan as the guarantors of world capitalism. Huntington was tasked with sketching out finance capital's complaints about the current state of American society. 
and the problem was clear. American society had become too egalitarian, and the new system of hierarchical power needed to be established. Enter President Jimmy Carter. Bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Carter is today remembered as a kindly old man who builds Habitat for Humanity homes, but that is not who President Jimmy Carter was. As president, Carter was tasked with disciplining the Democratic Party and shifting it finally away from whatever remained of its New Deal roots. For the American public, Carter was a final rejection of the promise of social movements of the 1960s. During his campaign, Carter had expressed his intent to end any federal policies supporting racial integration, telling supporters that he did not believe that the federal government should change the, quote, ethnic purity of city neighborhoods or the economic homogeneity of the suburbs through public housing. Further, administration officials declared that no new social welfare, health care, or educational programs would be initiated, signaling that the Democratic Party would no longer be supporting the efforts of the civil rights movement or upholding the gains of the New Deal or Great Society. Once in office, the Carter administration turned its back on the few progressive promises that it had made during the campaign. After promising women's groups that he would not support any restrictions on abortion rights, Carter and the Democrat-led House and Senate passed the Hyde Amendment. The first major victory in the anti-abortion movement, the amendment banned the use of Medicaid funds for abortion procedures. When a reporter pointed out that this policy was designed to specifically punish poor women, Carter responded, quote, There are many things in life that are not fair, that wealthy people can afford and poor people cannot. He went on to say that it was not the job of the federal government to provide equality of opportunity, particularly when there was a moral component involved. Similarly, Carter immediately violated his campaign promise to reduce the military budget, raising it to its highest level in U.S. history in 1978. Carter did keep his promise to increase working class poverty through his economic policies, however became the first Democrat of the New Deal era to declare that inflation was a more important economic indicator than unemployment. Carter turned his back on full employment policies and cut funding to employment programs for those in public housing. For those that sought to find work through education, Carter cut federal funding to historically black colleges to the bone. These colleges received 75% of their funding from the federal government when Carter took office. That funding had been cut to 18% by the time he left office in 1980. Carter's policies targeting the black community for economic punishment took an immediate toll, with 131,000 black families falling beneath the poverty line during his first year in office. Even the mainstream leaders in the black community accused Carter of callous neglect toward the black community. Reflecting the new emphasis on shifting the balance of class power in the country, Carter reduced the capital gains tax while increasing Social Security taxes, a direct transfer of wealth upward from the working class to the capitalist class. In his first months in office, Carter used the national emergency power of the federal government to break a coal miners' strike. The next year, he negotiated a federal bailout of Chrysler that required significant union concessions. With the standard of living declining for the American working class, Carter deflected blame away from the capitalist class and onto migrant workers. He called for the doubling of the size of the Border Patrol 
and created a blue ribbon commission to make recommendations for how to secure the U.S.-Mexico border. Carter ordered the building of physical defenses on the border to illustrate the danger that migrants were alleged to pose to the United States. Using fencing and ground sensors and supplying the Border Patrol with helicopters for aerial surveillance. The approach mirrored efforts to monitor and close off the infamous Ho Chi Minh Trail during the Vietnam War. The helicopters were even Vietnam surplus. In short, Carter created the modern border regime. Finally, Carter appointed Paul Volcker to the head of the Federal Reserve. Volcker had been recommended by David Rockefeller and Walt Riston for his political reliability. His job, once appointed, was to hike interest rates at the Fed window in order to induce a recession and finally break the back of American workers once and for all. Or as Volcker told Congress, quote, the standard of living of the average American has to decline. In every way, Carter's presidency presaged the Reagan years, with Reagan's administration representing not a revolution, as is properly remembered, but a continuation and acceleration of the Carter years. With the revolutionary elements of the American left successfully repressed in the early 1970s, there remained no countervailing force to prevent the Democratic Party from moving quickly and forcefully to the right. The moderate centrists left in charge of groups like the Urban League, the NAACP, and the country's unions were uniquely unequipped to deal with a situation where the Democratic Party told them to eat shit. <laughs> As historian Manning Marable writes of the Carter years, quote, A move to the political right would cause rumblings from the left of the Democratic Party, but these could be safely ignored. Thus, blacks and the broader Democratic left had helped to elect a president who had absolutely no intention of carrying out key elements of their program. Sound familiar? <laughs> Starting to feel a little deja vu, huh? <laughs> yeah. All right, well... I love it, Munya. We just did an hour plus of talking economics and political economy. That's what Banger. people pay. Man, I feel so podcast. alive. Exactly. I've never felt better. Um, I think just like the COINTELPRO episode, I think we're going to hold off on our commentary in this episode because I think we got a lot to say about it and we're already running a touch long. Yep. So. Uh, we're going to do one more episode after this. We're going to have an amazing interview about uh, how Vietnam was imagined once the war was over. <laughs> uh, it's great. You're going to want to hear it. The guy's awesome. Uh, you've heard us reference him on Mechanical Freak many times. Many, uh, many times. He's a really, <laughs> really big guest. Yeah. Now you're going to get to hear what he what he actually sounds like. All right. Uh, after that. Voice reveal. <laughs> voice reveal. <laughs> exactly. After that, we will uh, do a sort of summary episode of the 1970s, because I think this uh, is uh, academics love to say a lot to unpack here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but let's close on these thoughts here. So in their book, The New Class War, analyzing the first two years of the Reagan administration, Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward take a look at the economic policies of the new president. What they find in their analysis is not a policy guided by economic logic per se, but a policy guided by a profound moral logic that was central to the cosmology of the new neoliberal order. When the several major policy initiatives of the Reagan administration are laid side by side, something of a coherent theory that can be detected. 
but it is not a coherent theory of the workings of the economy. Economic thought has taken on the character of medieval theological disputation as economists of various faiths argue the true nature, causes, and probability effects of various Reagan policies and practices. Instead, the coherent theory is about human nature, and it serves the class interests of the Reagan administration and its business allies. It is the archaic idea that people in different social classes have different human natures and thus different basic motivations. The affluent are one sort of creature and working people another. It follows that these different sorts of creatures require different systems and incentives and disincentives if they are to be prodded to greater economic effort. The affluent exert themselves in response to rewards, to the incentive of increased profitability yielded by lower taxes. Working people respond only to punishment, to the economic insecurity that will result from reductions in income support programs. Reagan appears to believe that the rabble has captured the state and is plundering its resources, both to avoid work and to live better than those who do work. Productive people, like the self-made millionaires who surround Reagan, must be restored to honor and to power. Thus, does the indulgence of ideological animus nicely fit the calculation of class interest?
Ghost 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 Ghost